The following is a Kingfisher Media production. How much do we really know about strangers? Is it fair to assume that they're different from us, or should we be searching for things that we can relate to? We shouldn't look so hard at the things we don't understand or agree with. We should look at the things that make us think, this is what I like about you. Um, I'm a little bit nervous today because this is only the second interview I'm doing on video. I'm a little bit camera shy. I'm more of a microphone guy, but I think we'll just manage to get through this together, hopefully. With me today is a total stranger, aside from a couple of minutes of very superficial chatting. I don't know anything about him. I'm really, really curious to get to know what makes him tick. So I will let him introduce himself. Uh, Kellen Flukiger, did I get that right? You did, Kellen Flukiger. And that was the sum and substance of our pre-show conversation was how to say my last name. So there you go. So Kellen, we, we had just like the briefest of chats about recording equipment. And you said something about having done some, some voice work. I don't know what that's all about, but even that just got me intrigued. What can you tell me about that? Well, I've owned a recording studio since the eighties. It's been more active sometimes and less active. That was a time when I, as a session musician, I did a lot of keyboard and synth programming, drum programming, that sort of thing. Plus I also had a studio and my specialty, the fun thing that was fun was to have a, because I played keyboards and had a lot of arranging and so forth experience, a lot of synths and drum machines, I used to bring in solo artists that were either, you know, singer songwriters, guitar players or whatever. And they, and, and help produce their whole album. That was something I really, really enjoyed. And I did lots of those. I did, had some gigs with some Hollywood record stuff. And as a vocalist, I've been in a group that a large choir that does classical music that had several albums that charted number one on billboard. So I've a lot, I've done a lot of, performing in groups and individuals, both on keyboards and singing. So, and, and then I've also had a studio on and off for a lot of years because music's a big deal for me. So that's what it means. Okay, cool. So when you're performing in front of an audience, this seems to affect most people one of two ways, either they're, trying to hide from some insecurity and they sort of get lost in the spotlight or they just kind of thrive in that spotlight for a totally different reason where they feel connected to this group of, of spectators, the audience. Do you fall into one of those categories more than the other? I fall into both of them. Uh, I've also done a lot of speaking in my, I'm a coach today and have been for the last 14 years before that I had a 30 year, career in the energy industry. And I spoke at a lot of conferences and the role that I had, I ended up before a lot of legislative bodies in California and the U S and in Canada. And so I've been in the spotlight a lot. Sometimes it's hard as the years have gone by, I've gotten not enamored with the spotlight, but uh, developed, I guess, the ability to read the room and connect with the audience in a way and, and understood that my, my goal there, if I'm performing, is to, is to connect and have fun with them. And if I was in an executive or other kind of role and I was in front of a 
quasi-hostile crowd. My goal is to make something happen, not just get through the two or three hours of the conference. So that was a learning. I went through the same kind of, holy crap, stage fright, as, as everybody does. I don't feel that anymore in any context. I've got two gigs. One tomorrow, I'm speaking at a global virtual summit. And Saturday, I'm speaking for quite some time at a marketing conference, both of them virtually. So that's fun now for me. It didn't used to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything that you do to kind of like psych yourself up before you get in front of a group of people? You know, I've, I know people that have pregame rituals and uh, whether it's game or speaking or anything, and they do that sort of stuff. I have, I don't anymore. And the reason isn't because it isn't good or that it doesn't help. It's that I don't need to. And the preparation that I have is the same as the one I asked you before we started. Tell me something about the audience because I really want to know. So it's not a defensive thing anymore. It's like, if I'm going to talk to these people, I want to give them something. And when I have that want driving me, whether it's singing or speaking or teaching or, or whatever I'm doing, that want supersedes any fear and allows me to participate with them in whatever event we're co-creating. I think that works on a large scale or a small scale, though, because I mean, it, it's if I'm understanding you correctly, you're looking to have a meaningful interaction with whoever you're communicating with. You're not looking to talk past anybody. Last of all, talk past anybody. That's a waste of time. So uh, if I even if I'm selling from stage, my only interest is am I am I providing something that some group, small or large group in the audience actually needs? I'm not trying to hype anybody into anything. And I try intentionally to be present and be truthful, fun, persuasive, all the rest, but in a very authentic and connected way so that it's like people get down and say, yeah, that was cool. So it's an experience no matter what the outcome is. I feel like I, I'm... I know this isn't the sales pitch you're giving me, but when you're describing your overall um, approach to cultivating or presenting a stage presence, there's an authenticity that comes through that just makes me want to relax. And I, I hate to say buy whatever you're selling, but I feel like you just, you're putting me in a position where I'm just naturally receptive to kind of hear what you're saying. So I, I don't know how much feedback you get from your audience, but from this audience of one so far, like you're scoring top points with me. <laughs> it's, and I, I thank you. Thank you for that acknowledgement. Thank you for that being willing to even say such a thing. That is a skill. It is a skill that is something you can develop. And I know I have a client, a coaching client who runs a very large sale organiza sales organization, <clears throat> training. He's a sales trainer and he's one of the best in the world. And he, so he's really good at it too. And the piece that you mentioned that's different for me intentionally is the authenticity. Like at the end of the day, I don't care. I don't have a personal stake in whether any individual buys my stuff, whether it's actual purchase or concepts or ideas or whatever. I'm not trying to talk anybody into anything. And the way that that 
is developed. There is a secret to that. And the secret to that is I actually care. So when people come to business for business coaching or sales coaching or even stage speaking or anything, the first thing I say is you have to actually exercise your give a crap muscle. You have to, you have to learn to care about the audience. And that's why I want to know who they are and what they need and all the rest. I actually want to know so that I can see if I have something for them. I have no interest in trying to get somebody to do something they don't want to do. They'll regret later. So that's what you're experiencing. And it's on purpose. And it's true. I actually care that you and your audience enjoy our interaction. I, I love everything about that. Is this the sort of, um, I don't want to say strategy, but is this the kind of approach that you would encourage your, your coaching clients to adopt? A hundred percent. Here's the interesting thing about coaching. You hear lots of coaches who train coaches or coaching schools. They'll say, oh, you got to niche down. You got to be a this coach or a that coach or a gardening coach or a dating coach or a you know, plucked eyebrow coach or any weird thing. And the answer is I don't do any of that. What I do is I go get to know people because I love people. And I find out if they want something and I believe that I can help them with that thing. And that involves a lot of listening and a lot of questions. And by the time I ever get around to a conversation about whether or not it makes sense to work with them, I already know everything I need to know. Like I would say from a sales point of view, I'm armed and dangerous because <laughs> I know what you need. I know what you want. I know what you've tried before. I know all that. And then I actually know, can I help you? This doesn't sound like a cold sales approach where you're addressing need, greed, and fear of loss. <laughs> you know, all those things play. All those things play, but they play from a different place. I don't try to invent need, greed, or fear of loss. Not interested in that. And I understand there's people that do and that teach it and that sell a lot of stuff and they have whatever reputation and reaction they do. And I don't really care. What I, what I discover in coaching, no matter if it's a pharmacy owner, and these are all real clients, pharmacy owner comes, wants to double his income, marketing agency owner lives in Chicago who you know, wants to grow his business or uh, a guy, the sales guy that owns a sales organization, sales training organization, they, they come for whatever reason they come in their mind. At the end of the day, the most important thing we're working on is how are you showing up in the world as a person? Hmm. Like, who are you? Because if you can figure out who you are really and level that up, you can have anything you want. Like you just have to figure out how to become the person that has that thing. How do I become the pharmacy owner that whose pharmacy does twice as much revenue? Well, I don't know. Let's see. What do you do good at right now? What would make that grow? How would we do that? Who do you have to be so that that's a natural outcome? Because when you do it the other way, it's like you have to force, I have to try to do these things. And it's a white knuckle experience. If you change who you're being, the activities are like, yeah, whatever. Of course I do that because that's who I am. I, I find like I'm spending more of my time here hanging on your words than I am 
thinking about what the next question should be. I mean, what you're, you're, you're talking about thinking about who you are, what does this successful version of me look like? I, I find like this brings up a lot of personal stuff for me because, um, it, there's no shame in, in what I'm about to say. I've been um, seeing a therapist for quite some time now. And one of the earlier exercises that she had had me do was to write a letter to my past self. Mm-hmm. And while that was a meaningful exercise, it wasn't a terribly difficult thing for me. When she flipped the script and said, okay, now I want you to write a letter to your future self. I started to get actually pretty angry because I was imagining who I want my future self to be. And I realized I spend a lot of time working for future self's benefit. But whereas present me was able to counsel and aid past me, future me is annoyingly silent. And I found there's a lot of um, anger and hatred towards this future version of self that was coming up. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into a conversation all about me, but is this sort of mindset something that you bump up against at all? Of course it is. That in, I, There's lots of possibilities, and I'm not going to say this is it, but if we were working together, I would be exploring, <clears throat> are you pissed off at your future self because you think you can't have that? Like you have a dream about your future self, and somehow you think that's out of your reach, and so you're mad at you, that version of you, because it has something you won't actually ever get. And if any version of that is true, like it'll take too long or it's too hard or I can't have it or whatever, I could have that except this or that. And we look at these externalities, the economy, COVID, the weather, God, the government, whatever. Okay. Like if if we decontaminate all that and we take all the emotion out of it and say, what's actually in the way? Like, what would the behaviors of that future person be that allows them to have what you have said they have? So you decided what they have, how they live, what they enjoy. Cool. What are they doing that allows them to have that? And what are you doing today on your way there that allows not that? Right? And what can we change so that you become the one that allows that? You are listening to What I Like About You. Please remember to like, follow, and share. Yeah, I get, these are all good questions. I mean, I would love to explore this as far as I'm concerned with you, but that's not what this show is about. Um, the passion that you're using when you're, you're talking about these things it hints towards um, some sort of personal experience on the mix here. Dude, I only do one thing from the second, and this is not hype from the second, my eyes open till they close at night. I have a personal mission. That personal mission is to help a minimum of 10 million people discover, develop and serve with their divine gifts. Every one of us has gifts that we are good at, that we like to do, and that we know intuitively we can and probably should be using to help serve and add good to the world is a phrase that I use. We also have a whole rubric around us of what's important and money and status and an acronym that I use, WITOT, W-I-T-O-T, and it stands for what I think others think. You know, that infects so much of what we do and don't do and what we try and don't try. 
And I have had some astounding, staggering, mind-blowing, divine, impossible experiences that have dragged me out of my own personal hell in my life and that have put me in a place where I have developed patience I didn't used to have, love for everyone that I used, didn't used to have, empathy and a real desire to have people experience the happiness that they can have. So there is personal mission. There is personal experience. Everything is 100% genuine. If you talk to me on any day, at any time, this is the same person you'd see. I, I feel that coming through loud and clear, which is honestly, it's a, it's a really refreshing experience for me. So, Good. Yay. I, 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 I'm not <laughs> trying to like, you know, blow smoke up your, your rear. It just, I believe in honest and immediate feedback. So if I thought you were a total jerk, I tell you that just as comfortably, but it just, I, I'm really, really enjoying this time so far together. Good. There, there's a lot of, information that's that's coming out you don't waste words but man there's just so much that comes out in such a a brief collection of sentences um one of the words that has come up now a couple of times it it just sort of it, it it pings on my radar maybe because of my own past but you mentioned the word divine you said divine gift divine purpose what does divine mean to you well <clears throat> Um, I've had un unexpectedly, I had an experience three years ago that most people never have. I died hmm. and I spent several weeks in a coma. I contracted a fatal illness that caused me to die in the intensive care unit of the university of Alberta, uh, medical center. And during that time I had three conversations with God at the door between life and eternity. Before that time, I knew some things, the kind of intuitive way we know things, the pull, the intuition, the yearning that we feel that we don't really know where it comes from, the, the you call it intuition, call it the universe, call it whatever we want to, but it pulls at our heartstrings and we think we probably should do this and we feel these yearnings. Uh, my experiences taught me that they're not only true, but they're purposeful, direction oriented and intentional. So divine, I mean, in the sense of from the intentionality of creation, we're not accidents. We were put here on purpose. We have been given gifts. We know intuitively that we were somewhere before. This isn't the beginning in a random moment. And we, if we're quiet and honest, we also feel that there's more to our existence than a few years of whatever we scratch out of this world and then boom, it's over. And that comes from a place of having lived that way. I struggled with depression for decades. I had failed relationships. I lived with a, a universe of self-loathing. I was raised in a super religious home where the discipline would be felony child abuse today. Yeah. And all that kind of thing left me, you know, for decades trying to prove that I was somebody and that led in and out of relationships. I was married, divorced three times. I was in and out of rehab at the same time, holding down 
very high level jobs making ridiculous amounts of money. So complete juxtapositions that, um, you know, kind of like movie stuff on one side, it's like, wow. And on the other side, it's like, holy crap, you know, that (laughs) sort of thing. And so it's, you know, comes together to where I comfortably absolutely know some things. I don't try to make anybody else know anything, but when I coach someone and I can see they are, or even talk to someone, it allows me to be compassionate and patient and encouraging in a way that if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be able to do. Who coaches you? I have had several coaches. Uh, so it depends on what I'm doing. I have a guy that I use for stage work. I have a guy that I use for vocal work, uh, singing. And I also have someone that I ter- I look at for um, this internal work. So I, I use different people. Okay. I, I, everybody, everybody, I'm not going to say everybody needs coach. They certainly don't. Anyone who's trying to be, uh, nobody goes to the Olympics without a coach. Nobody wins the world championship in any sport or on stage or anywhere without a coach. A coach is that person who is on your team, is willing and able to encourage you in a way that someone else couldn't be truthful. You it's an open, supportive place where you don't have to play with what I think others think that, that sort of barrier. And so a coach that's really trying to get to the level of like serious work better be being coached because otherwise they're not practicing their craft in the context of being coached. Do you feel, and I think I already know the answer to this, but do you ever feel like it's a struggle to practice what you preach? I used to, and it it's, it's just like, okay. I had for 20 years, a Steinway nine foot concert grant. Okay. That is the concert grant that 90 something percent of the world's artists perform on. Most concert halls have them. It is the Steinway D. I mean, it's that piano, you know what I mean? And there's Bosendorfer and there's Aeoli and there's some others, but Steinway owns wildly the lion's share of the market. I owned one for 20 years. I sold it five years ago when we moved from Phoenix up to Edmonton because the house we rented, we did in purpose on purpose to be close to my wife's mom because she was 90. She was late 80s then. Now she's 90 and living with us, but she wasn't living with us. And we needed to take care of her. And it didn't fit in there. And I'd had it for 20 years. And I thought, you know, I've had my turn. Most people never get to play on one, let alone own one. Mm-hmm. So here was, here's the story that goes to your ask. I used to complain, oh, I got to practice, I got to practice, I got to practice, I got to practice. And one day it occurred to me, I have to practice. I get the privilege of practicing as many hours a day on I want as I want on a, on a piano that costs as much as some houses, that is the premier instrument in the world that some people would die to touch. And I have to practice. 
oh, how awful, you know, that occurred to me. And I said it to myself that way. And it was funny, you know, it's like, oh, for crying out loud. Right. So morning ritual. Yeah. It used to be a pain. I got to get up and I have created different ones. And today my morning ritual is between two and a half and three hours. And I would no sooner skip that than run outside in the snow in minus 40, which it was day before yesterday up here naked. You know, I just wouldn't skip that. No, it's not hard anymore because it does something so good for me that I don't want to be without it. It's amazing what a, what a tweak in your perspective and your attitude will do. I used to, you know, I used to, and when I didn't do it all, I used mad at myself. Oh, I'm behind. I didn't get up in time. Oh, shoot. I'm, my day's going to suck. I'm, I can't make up the time. Oh, you know, and live with that behind. I called it the eight ball feeling like it was behind yeah. the eight ball. And <clears throat> I don't do that anymore. I live every day. I, fun. It's joyful. I don't do anything I don't want to do. I get up and I do my morning ritual because I love it. Makes me feel like I am right now. It lets me be this guy all day, every day. Is there anything about this guy that people don't see that you wish that they would? I'm pretty much open that they don't see. I, if it is, I don't know what it is. I'm who I am, everywhere I am, at church, in the community, walking down the street, in the grocery store, on podcasts, on my podcast, on my YouTube videos everywhere. And it's really fun. When I lived that other kind of life, I, I remember saying to myself, I can be anyone you like. And like a method actor who's playing a legend or an alias, I could do it and do really good. Put on the three-piece Armani, go downtown and do the thing. I could do that. And then when the lights went out and I was by myself, I didn't know who I was. I mean, I did not know who I was. Who are you? I don't know. What do you feel? I don't feel anything. And, and so that was a real traumatic, painful, lost way to live. Today, I don't feel any of that ever on any day at any time. That's actually huge. You, you hear so much these days about people. They're on these um, journeys of self-discovery. It's a, a rare thing to hear somebody to say, you know what, I've discovered myself and I think he's great. I, I don't, I, sometimes I say stuff like that and it sounds weird. I have my, the name of my podcast is called Your Ultimate Life. And I started it for a funny reason. At the beginning of the pandemic, March of 2020, when the, you know, the cases in Italy were exploding and we all thought maybe for a minute we were going to die, Right. And, you know, everybody was locking this and that down. I was like, holy crap, what's going on? The end of the world has come. <laughs> and somebody called my wife, who is an angel, and asked, does Kellen have a podcast? Because he knew I did motivational speaking at conferences and this and that and the other. And I didn't, but she said, yes. And she came downstairs and said, we have a podcast. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. So I decided I was going to do a 15-minute daily podcast called Your Ultimate Life, and I define it in a particular way, a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy that you create by serving with your divine gifts. And I just recorded episode 
587 the other day. Oh, wow. And so I've nearly been, we missed a couple of days when we had to move and Joy's mom moved in with us. We needed to change houses and stuff. So I missed a few days here and there, but pretty much every day for almost two years now, it'll be two years in April, that'd be 700 and something. I've done that and I do it as a labor of love because I want to help people understand that they can live that ultimate life today. It isn't, I'll get it out there when. I'll, I can have that when I do this. It's, it's the shift you talked about. It's a choice to have joy. It's a choice to be that way. And I don't have a monopoly on that. Thank you for listening to What I Like About You. Please remember to like, follow, and share. So much of your story, I mean, I, I, I feel like, and I, I know that life isn't all about keeping score, like how I'm doing compared to you. It's like how I'm doing compared to past me, I think is a better metric. But so much of what you're saying, I can identify with because I, in my own ways, I've had to like overcome different things. I think some of the things that you and I have overcome are the same things. I also grew up in a very, very religious household where, like you said, the abuse, <laughs> it, it was extreme at times, mm -hmm. but I managed to get to the point where, um, as, as an adult, I managed to finally make peace with my father. I mean, he died, um, uh, 19 years ago. Now I was still a fairly young man, but, um, I managed to make peace with him and not just, you know, bury the hatchet, but he ended up being my best friend. And I can, I can look at him now with fondness. It's not like I've forgotten or buried the, 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 the trauma of the abuse, but in a way I'm almost grateful to the experience because I've learned to like who I am right now today. And this guy doesn't exist without that experience. And that was kind of a, a hard thing to muscle through. But I mean, I, I think you've been encouraging the audience so effectively so far to embrace what's possible. I mean, I want to piggyback on that a little bit in this moment, if I can, because like it's, it, it's so easy in life to make excuses. Oh, but my hurt is so big. You couldn't understand what I've been through. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, but but there's no yeah buts in life, <laughs> are there? Uh, it's funny. I use that yabbit, yabbit, yabbit. And I spell it Y-A-B-U-T, yabbit, kind of like wabbit, you know? <laughs> yabbit, 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 yabbit. <clears throat> you know what I think? I just finished, I've written 15 books since I started my journey in 2007 and walked away from all that other stuff. And I have seven more underway. And one I just finished editing, and it's at the publishers now. And the name of it is Forgiveness. A journey of courage to a place of freedom and power. And it addresses very specifically what you've just identified. And here's the thing. It may be true that you, me, any individual, you've had the worst example experience. No one could possibly understand the ultimate, absolute, insane cruelty. In, blah, 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 blah. Okay. I'm not even going to argue with you. Okay. But here's the truth. The truth is you have a, you still have a choice. The choice is you continue to allow that monstrous insanity to control and manipulate and limit your life or you don't. 
if you choose to hang on to the need of revenge, lust, or a need for someone to be punished, or a need for someone to ha- apologize, or a need for someone to bleed out in front of you, or whatever it is, as long as you hold on to that, it's like carrying a great big bunch of rocks in your backpack. Yeah. And you're free to carry them till you die and claim to your grave. Fine. That's a whole bunch of life that you've missed and a gigantic pile of crap you carried. You could have set down at any moment. And setting it down has nothing to do with absolving anything anyone did. It has nothing to do with making it okay. It has nothing to do with putting yourself in danger or doing anything stupid. It simply has to do with you declaring, I'm done allowing that set of incidents to have further impact in my life. The big turning point for me was um, I was listening to a talk that the Dalai Lama was doing years ago. And he had said something along the lines of um, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That was a real light bulb moment for me. It's, it, it's just like you, you said, I mean, you, you can't always expect to hold other people accountable for the pain you're feeling, even if they're directly responsible for it. They can't undo what's been done. Unfortunately, dealing with the aftermath is entirely my responsibility, your responsibility. It's not theirs. And, um, you know, it, it, it sort of ties into what's become one of my central philosophies, which is that taking personal responsibility is a much more valuable exercise than assigning blame. I love that. There's a, a dude that's dead now. His name's Dr. Nathaniel Brandon. And he wrote a bunch of books about personal responsibility and open-ended questions like if you took 1% more responsibility for whatever it is, some small thing, what would you do different today? You know, and, and the idea, getting away from the idea, you have to tell or none, you know, incremental additional responsibility or incremental something, but the idea that it is, and one of his favorite things is like, you know, no one is coming. Yeah. Right. The other half of that forgiveness thing is something that was very active in my life. And that was, you know, we talked about bitter angerness, bitter, bitterness, anger, need for justice and everything else against someone else. A huge one for me has been the self-loathing, self-recrimination, can't forgive yourself sort of mantra because of all the stuff that happened. I mean, I did get married and divorced three times. I'm sure I was a disaster not knowing how to be a partner and attracting, you know, I was broken, but the women, I, two of the women I married, one of them was raised by an alcoholic stepdad and one was, her mom committed suicide when she was nine or 12, sorry. And she was lied about it for nine years till she was 21. And I didn't have any idea what that sort of stuff did to someone. I, I, cause I didn't know anything about anything. So I'm sure I offered no support, no help, no this, that, and the other, and then, so, so I've carried this enormous, had carried this enormous self. Ugh, if I'd only this, if I'd only that, I hate myself for this, that, and the other. And the same logic applies. So whether you're talking about forgiving someone else because they did this to you or forgiving yourself because you did something to them, it's like in any 12-step program, they, if you're overcoming some kind of addiction or compulsive behavior, they talk about making amends. Well, there is a place for that. You do what you can to fix what you broke. 
Okay. But with most things, especially when it involves trust and feelings and pain and all the rest, you can't fix it. And you never will be able to unsay, undo, unlie, uncheat, whatever it is you did. So again, you have the choice. I can grovel and beat myself up forever about that thing, which simply limits any further future good that I can do, or I can do the best that I can to fix it, forgive myself and move forward without any worry about whether or not somebody accepts your apology, whether or not they think you're okay now. That's their journey on the other side of the coin, and you cannot fix it no matter what you do. And that's some really, really profound stuff. And I, I hate to be in a position to have to say this, but we're sort of coming towards the tail end of our time here together. Okay. What is coming through loud and clear, which I do want to like heavily emphasize just so that you know that I see this. I think anybody could benefit very, very much from what you bring to the table. If somebody wants to come and, and, and find your services, get in touch with you, learn more about you, what, what are the best ways to do that? Well, one of the fun things about having a really weird name, Kellen Flukiger, is I'm really easy to find. So if you Google me, there are thousands of hits. And they're from my executive career and my testimony before Congress, and then also my current stuff, my website, my LinkedIn profile, my books on Amazon, all that stuff. And you won't find the wrong one. Like, it isn't like there's somebody else. There's one other Kellen Flukiger, and he's my son, and he's not doing any of this work. So I'm really easy to find. Uh, if you Google me, if you Amazon me, the only requirement is you do have to spell my name right. So uh, other than that, you, you can find me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. If somebody wants to chat, I'd love to do that. And and if somebody's interested in services, the answer is I always, I don't know. Let's talk and see if it makes sense. Let's chat and get to know, like we talked in the beginning. I don't know. Let's just talk for a while and see what you want, see what you need, see what you've tried, and we'll see if it makes sense. Like I'm not, I have a sign up here. My runs my business. I never look for clients. I look for people to love, opportunities to serve, and problems to solve. And I live by that and I mean it and I never worry about it. And everything takes care of itself and it really does. Well, Kellen Flukiger has been an absolute delight chatting with you today. Um, normally at the end of the episode, I, I take a few moments to highlight the things that surprise me that I like about you and, and how they conflict with my preconceptions. But this is the first time in, I don't know how many episodes in we are now, 20 something probably, where I don't have any preconceptions that I need to battle with. And I don't want to butter you up too much and, and, and give you too much of a swelled head, but I, I feel like I, I've, I've fed back on the things I like about you all throughout this conversation. So I would love it if this was a recurring theme on the show, but if it's not, this is the first and first and only time so far, I don't have anything new to add at the end. So I'm just going to thank you for your, your time. Thank you so much for your insights. Wow. Like you've given me a lot to chew on. You're, and, you're welcome. Uh, 
You're welcome with all my heart, and I want to honor you. And the reason I do is because anybody that takes the effort and time to add good to the world, to to lift people's spirits, to give them something positive to think about, that's it's a good thing. And so I want to honor and acknowledge you for that work. So thank you. Thank you, Kellen. <laughs>